Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Ben Hall, the FT's World News Editor. On the show this week, we'll be looking at revolution in Ukraine and its aftermath. Viktor Yanukovych, Ukraine's Russian-backed president, was ousted in a popular uprising last week, enraging Moscow and Ukraine's Russian-speaking population. The country is now caught in a perilous tug-of-war between Russia and the West. Russia is stepping up its sabre-rattling adding to fears in Western capitals that it could even intervene militarily to protect its interests in Ukraine and its citizens there. Joining with me from Kiev is Neil Buckley, the FT's East Europe editor, and on the line from Moscow is Catherine Hiller, the FT's Moscow bureau chief. Neil, can I start with you? How big do you think the danger is of Ukraine breaking up at the moment? I think the worst-case scenario, which was a kind of east-west split in Ukraine, seems to have been averted, perhaps. A week ago, actually, I think the threat of that sort of a split was much higher after we had the shooting on the main square of Kiev, in which dozens of people died, and it really looked as though violence could escalate. At that point, I think some kind of situation where the western regions started to pull away from the east, that danger was much more real As of now, what we're hearing, and we've had correspondence in these regions, is that the West is relatively calm, and apart from some clashes in the East, the East is relatively calm as well. But the real focus of attention is the South. It's Crimea, the peninsula on the Black Sea, where there is a Russian majority population and which used to belong to Russia until the 1950s when it was handed over to Ukraine, which in those days was essentially an administrative transfer within the Soviet Union. There are representatives of the Russian majority population there who are pushing the case for even secession of Crimea from Ukraine. And this is a very worrying situation. The temporary authorities in Kiev haven't exactly helped matters by passing laws on the Russian language and today announcing that they're going to dismantle the riot police that was so instrumental in the crackdown last week. Do you think they are losing touch with what to do about the situation in Kiev? I don't think they're losing touch with what to do with the situation in Kiev. I think there have been one or two mistakes, perhaps. I think focusing on the language law, which they did on Sunday very early on in the post-Yanukovych era, was probably a mistake. And disbanding the Berkut, the riot police, has not gone down well in Crimea, which supplied some of the riot police who died in clashes last week. But I think the acting leadership and the parliament have been very clear in the need to keep Ukraine together. They've also been trying to reach out to eastern regions and to Crimea. You have to bear in mind, though, that they've got to also keep on side, as it were, the protesters on the square. And the protesters had come to hate the riot police because they'd been in clashes with them for a number of weeks. And so the parliament and the acting leadership here has a very delicate balancing act to do. But I think overall, it hasn't actually done it that badly. I think 
that there are efforts underway in Crimea to destabilize the situation. Perhaps there may even be Russians involved in that, but that may be something that's happening independently of what the Kiev authorities are doing. Do you get a sense of what could actually happen in Crimea to prompt any sort of Russian intervention? I think if we got to the point where Crimea actually declared that it was seceding from Ukraine, then Russia has said that it would then be prepared to, or would have an obligation to protect the citizens of Crimea in that case. But we're not at that point, and there aren't any indications that we necessarily will get to that point, though there are clearly people in Crimea who are trying to stir this up and raise this as a possibility. Catherine, how do you gauge the Russian reaction so far? Well, over the last two or three days, the official reaction has been two-pronged. President Vladimir Putin has been very silent and has been mainly busy talking on the phone with Western leaders. And then there has been a lot of talking, a lot of actions from other Russian politicians, including groups of lawmakers flying down to Crimea and people suggesting that the Russian government should be handing out passports to ethnic Russians in Crimea, Russian passports. And then that has been tone that's very contradictory. So one could interpret that as the public move, as uh, attempts to maybe fend off domestic pressure from people who feel worried about what's going on in Crimea. President Vladimir Putin can arguably play a longer game here he can wait until the americans and the european union grapple with their own contradictions on how to deal with the ukrainian issue and in the hope that the west essentially disappoints the new authorities in kiev but to what extent do you think he might be rushed along by nationalist sentiment in russia i think so far that risk is not very high although there has been calls or questions about why Putin has been so silent and why not more is being done, those calls do not amount to anything like a movement or a panic or massive disappointment. So I think the pressure, although it's rising, it's not risen to the point yet where Mr. Putin would be pushed along. Do you think, Catherine, that intervention by Russian military forces is actually feasible or conceivable? Ukraine is not South Ossetia, the breakaway region of Georgia, for example. One line is that the Russians in Crimea need to be protected, but there is certainly a sense of lack of confidence on the part of the military that this would actually be feasible. If we look at the Russian military presence there, the Black Sea Fleet is stationed in Sevastopol, and as far as I know, they have about 15,000 staff there, but these are not people trained for a conflict on land, and then they would be facing not a small force like they faced in Georgia in 2008, but the Ukrainian military, and that would be an entirely different story. Military force, of course, is not the only leverage that Russia has in this situation. One important lever for Moscow is money. Ukraine needs lots of money, arguably quite fast. Neil, give us an update on the financial situation facing Kiev. Well, this is a message that's coming out of the acting leadership of Ukraine very strongly, which is the coffers are empty. The situation with the state finances is worse, they are saying, than the published figures from the previous government suggested. So the message I'm getting here on the ground loud and clear is we need help and fast. 
as someone said to me earlier today, don't desert us, don't leave us alone facing Russia in this situation. There are public salaries coming due, there are miners in the east who need to be paid and will be very angry if they're not. So I think the financial support question is absolutely crucial. And at the moment, the concern here is that there is an awful lot of bureaucratic and administrative questions holding things up from the point of view of people here in the West and insistence that there has to be all sorts of conditionality attached to aid. Of course, that's the way financial aid works. But the message here is we need it and we need it fast. And if we don't get it, then this is an area in which Russia can exert pressure And Russia can exert a lot of pressure and a lot of pain that way without any of the kind of risks that would be involved through, say, intervention in Crimea, which would be an enormously dangerous thing for Russia to do. And I think Mr. Putin and the Moscow leadership would understand that. Do you think aid will be forthcoming from the West? We can only hope that it will. The European Commission today said that the IMF and the EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, among other international financial institutions, are discussing these questions. But I think the barriers are one. There needs to be at least an interim government in place in Ukraine for them to deal with. That government should be in place on Thursday. There's a parliamentary vote scheduled and the members of the new government are supposed to be presented to protest leaders and indeed to protesters themselves on the square on Wednesday evening. So there will be people in place fairly shortly. But then there is the question of the conditions that would be attached. The IMF in the past has said Ukraine must raise domestic gas prices, household gas prices, which are heavily subsidized here, which is a politically difficult thing to do because it will hurt the pockets of Ukrainians. They've also said that there should be more exchange rate flexibility. Well, we've, in fact, seen the national currency devalue quite sharply in recent weeks. So part of that has already happened, but more would still have to be done. And those are the kind of things which will not be popular with Ukrainians. Okay, thank you very much. That's it for this week. My thanks to Neil Buckley in Kiev and Catherine Hiller in Moscow. World Weekly is produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.